You're listening to Ambe, a year of Indigenous reading. Thinking about how to put this, how to put this together because there's just too much good fiction out there written by Indigenous people. Whether, you, you know, even if we were just to narrow it to the Anishinaabe people, you know, because I, I started with um, with Bobkishik as, as kind of the first person I approached about being on the panel. And even if we just limit it to our own nation, there's just so much good fiction out there. And then part of this project, I've really been broadening my understanding of what it is to be Indigenous, of who is Indigenous and what that means, you know, to, to be Indigenous in a place that you're not Indigenous to. How do our stories, and that's part of what Kesha and, and, and Sonia talked about, is how do their stories root in this place and help build community and, and build relationship in this place? And then what do our own stories have? Because our own stories change. That's one of the things that, I mean, I grew up evangelical Christian, right? Like there's one story, that's it. And even though the four gospels are a little bit different, we're going to shoehorn them in until they're all the same. We're one thing that I really loved about Nishnabig stories is how different they are. Different communities will have different ways of telling the same, you know, the same story because community needs are different and perspectives are different and, and our stories evolve and change over time. And so that's something I'm really excited about hearing um, from Wokishig about. Um, kind of going to go around and as you enter, you know, and, and as I have you introduce yourselves, um, tell us a story. I know Sonia has got one about the fox that I'm looking forward to hearing about. So this is going to be a little bit different because we're going to be sharing stories and then talking about how our stories, how our stories shape us, how they help us, how, what they teach us. Anyway, so we're going to start with Janessa. I read, I read Moon in the Crested Snow and I read uh, Black Sun and I read another one by uh, Rebecca. What was the other one? Oh, Trail of Lightning. And all of those books were really good. My favorite two were Moon in the Crest of Snow and Trail of Lightning. And I'm not just saying that because uh, we have one of the authors on here, <laughs> but I really love sci-fi and like post-apocalyptic stuff and apocalyptic stuff. And just like talking about like um, things ending, things being reborn. So uh, both like Trail of Lightning and uh, Moon in the Crest of Snow sort of dealt with that. And I thought it was just really cool, like the perspectives that the stories were told from, um, especially like Moon of the Crest of Snow, because I feel like it was sort of set like, I might be wrong, but it sort of set like at the beginning of everything happening. So it was really cool to like watch things or read things like unfolding and nobody really knows what's going on. I still am like what actually happened. So maybe write a book too. Um, but anyway, yeah. Uh, I'm going to end there because I'm really excited to hear from the rest of you all. So, well, I think maybe then we'll go straight uh, to Wab. Wab or Wab Gishig? What do you prefer? Oh, you can you can call me Wab uh, in a friendly way. That's totally cool. Everybody calls me Wab. I go by Wab Gishig formally, uh, but you know we uh, I've been called Wab all my life, so it's uh, totally cool with me. 
All right, Wab. So we'll go to you since Janessa just set up your book so beautifully. Say, Chmiigwech, for having me. This is super cool. Um, I I was at an event with Sonia back in the fall uh, for the, I think it was the draft reading series. And uh, it's cool to be here with you, Kesha. So uh, just want to say I'm really looking forward to hearing from from everybody tonight. So uh, again, Chmiigwech, Patty, this is super cool. I'm in, uh, I just want to acknowledge I'm in uh, my backyard in Sudbury, which is the traditional territory of Atikamekshing Anishinaabek. And Sudbury is also known as Swakamuk. Um, This is all under the Robinson Huron Treaty. And I'm originally from Wasoxing First Nation on Georgian Bay near Perry Sound, Ontario. And those are Robinson Huron Treaty lands as well. So um, of Anishinaabe and Canadian descent. Uh, my dad is from the res. My mom is from town, as it goes. And uh, I live here uh, with my wife and our two little boys, uh, one of which has just gone to bed. I got the monitor here close by, just in case. Um, and my wife just brought our other boy back from uh, from soccer. So, you know, a little bit of excitement probably coming up, but uh, that's why I planted myself in the backyard, uh, just in case. Um, so, yeah, I'm happy to talk about more about Moon of the Crescent Snow as our discussion goes on. But uh, uh, I'll just talk a little bit about the story that's in this anthology. Uh, it just was published last week. Um, it's called Sword Stone Table, Old Legends, New Voices. Uh, and it's a collection of uh, Arthurian retellings, or I guess newer versions of the Camelot story. My wife has just come <laughs> to pick up the monitor. <laughs> That's okay. Um, so yeah, uh, I was approached uh, a couple of years ago um, by a writer named Jen Northington, uh, based in uh, Philadelphia. She and her friend Swapna Krishna were considering um, doing these Arthurian retellings uh, from the perspective of so-called marginalized uh, people, right? Um, And so they wanted uh, LGBTQ perspectives, um, I guess, newcomer to these lands perspectives, uh, you know, race shifting, gender shifting perspectives as well. And when they emailed me, I said, well, I don't really know too much about the whole King Arthur world other than what's in pop culture, right? Like uh, the Sword in the Stone movie that Disney put out, uh, you know, many decades ago, Um, you know, Knights of the Round Table, Camelot, you know, those old movies and, and so on. Uh, and I said, well, I'm not really sure what I can contribute other than that pop culture perspective. And they said, oh, no, that's that's great, too. You know, we want to hear um, what someone from your background uh, has to say or, you know, can how, how someone from your perspective can reinterpret, you know, one of these old stories that have been told uh, by white people ad nauseum for centuries now. Right. Um, and, and for me, the easiest parallel I could draw was from my own community's experience with being displaced and being colonized and the Excalibur story, the sword and the stone story, right? Um, so that's probably the, the most popular or most renowned uh, King Arthur story about, you know, him uh, pulling the sword from the stone, the Excalibur, and then, you know, becoming this revered figure. Um, you know, nobody believes that he can do that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in, in my community, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, uh, I was very fortunate to be a kid in a time where the adults and the elders were really making widespread concerted efforts to reclaim 
reclaim the Shinabe customs, uh, bring the stories back, bring ceremonies back and so on. Um, so as I was a kid growing up in the 80s and 90s, I saw this sort of reawakening in my community and it had a very positive impact on me and my family and, and my peers and so on, because we were fortunate to grow up with, uh, I guess, a, a clearer sense of identity than many of our um, ancestor family members did uh, as a result of colonialism, right? So one, one story in our community that persists today um, in recent history is that uh, we don't know where our drums are. So where I'm from originally is, uh, you know, on Georgian Bay, as I mentioned, um, our ancestors uh, migrated up and down the North Shore of Lake Huron and Georgian Bay since time immemorial, as they say. But once the Robinson-Huron Treaty that was signed in 1850 was, I guess, interpreted and then enforced by what became Canada um, after 1867, uh, that the, the way the authorities interpreted that was to displace my ancestors from the mainland and put them onto this island called Perry Island. Uh, but, you know, traditionally known as Wasoxing by our ancestors. So what happened then was, you know, um, forestry became the primary industry in what became the Perry Sound, Ontario area. So uh, that was the end of the world. That was the apocalypse for my ancestors. And that happened only uh, to my grandmother's grandparents' generation, right? So that's only four generations ago, ultimately. So not long ago at all. Um, so I've, I've known that experience uh, my entire life. And, and that's um, what really inspired Moon of the Crested Snow um, in many ways too. Uh, but with the drums specifically, you know, there were stories about uh, people in our community holding on to these really um, old, really revered drums, but nobody knows where they are now because after being displaced from the mainland, uh, you know, they went out to the, to the island and then the Indian agent came onto the island and was, you know, tasked with upholding the Indian Act. Uh, and that meant forbidding, you know, ceremonies, cultural celebrations, gatherings, etc. And that also meant taking the drums away. Um, so those drums were either confiscated and destroyed by the Indian agent, I'm sure some of them were, uh, but some of them, it is said, were also hidden away, were also protected somewhere, but somewhere along the way, that knowledge has been forgotten. So nobody really knows where those drums are. Uh, so when I was thinking about the Excalibur story, uh, you know, I drew a direct parallel to that because we have this, these tangible items in our community's recent history uh, that we're unaware of, you know, that nobody has seen since, you know, the displacement of colonization and so on. So, you know, ultimately finding those drums again would be a pretty important moment. So I wanted to write about that in this uh, Swordstone Table um, anthology. So the story I wrote is called Heartbeat. Uh, it's set in the 1980s, so at the time when I was a kid, and it follows a 12-year-old boy named Art, so Arthur, and uh, he has this elder figure in his life named Merle, Merlin, you know, um, so he goes to this elder, and the elder tells him stories about, you know, the drums, and, and Arthur, Art, sorry, um, comes from a very, you know, I guess colonized family. Um, there's a lot of shame connected to Anishinaabe culture and, and language and so on in his family. But he has this desire to uh, learn more about being Anishinaabe himself. And he, I guess, connects with this elder to discover that. 
And then the elder tells him the story about these drums that are hidden somewhere in the community. So I won't give the, the story away too much, but you know, ultimately Art makes his quest uh, finding those drums and, and hopefully uh, delivering them to his community once again. So that connection with the drum, um, I saw really uh, inspire and invigorate my community as a kid because you know, when our, my parents' generation, um, like my dad and his, his peers specifically, um, it was a lot of the men who were going through some, you know, pretty tough times living in pretty uh, destructive ways. Um, but they decided that they wanted to sort of get out of those cycles and find ways to raise our generation in a happy and healthy ways. So what they did was, uh, found elders uh, to come into our community to teach them drum songs and so on. So again, though, we didn't have our own, our own drums, right? And, you know, there's this mystery that's loomed over us for a long time about where exactly they may be, but they made, made do with what they had uh, as best they could. And that meant, um, you know, so just to back up a little bit, we had this elder who would come in from a neighboring community He'd bring a big drum and we would sit at the drum and we'd learn the songs and uh, we'd, you know, learn the rhythm and so on, right? But then the this elder who would leave, uh, who would bring these drums in would leave and then we didn't have anything to practice on. So, so my dad and his buddies decided that, you know, we're going to need something to practice on because we don't know how to make our own drums yet. We don't know where our drums are. Uh, so what they did was they got in the car and they drove down to Aurelia to a pawn shop and they saw like a rock drum kit, you know, like a bass drum, you know, a floor tom, snare, um, you know, hi-hats and so on, right? And, and they said to the guy, well, we just want the big drum, you know, how much for the bass drum? And I guess the guy looked at them kind of funny. He's like, well, if that's all you want, you know, however much, right? So they bought the bass drum, brought it back, uh, and they turned it on its side. And they're like, okay, that's sort of the same size as a powwow drum. That's going to be our practice drum from now on, right? And then they're like, oh, well, I guess we need sticks. Uh, we don't know how to go into the bush and get the right kind of sticks for drumsticks. So let's take like tent poles and fishing poles and cut them down and then tape foam around the end, right? So my earliest memories of learning how to drum are, you know, on this big bass drum uh, with these like foam tent pole drumsticks, you know, like that. So uh, looking back, it was a really like... DIY kind of punk rock way of, you know, reconnecting with culture and reclaiming it, um, but ensuring like that there was that rhythm there, that heartbeat and those songs, uh, those melodies again to echo through our community. So, you know, in some ways uh, I'm always inspired by that because it shows how the resilience, um, but also the ingenuity of indigenous people in reclaiming these things that have been taken from us um, in really uh, creative ways because, you know, there's nothing else around us to support us in doing that. You know, we're very much on our own. Uh, so that was basically the, um, the main inspiration behind that heartbeat story. So again, if uh, you're interested, you can order it online, uh, published by Vintage, uh, Swordstone Table, Old Legends, New Voices. I love that story about the drums because I think we get, we get so caught up in the sacred, right? And I'm spelling that mm. S-A-C-R-I-T, it's sacred. <laughs> you know, it's the way we think about it. And it's, you know, and it's gotta be in a, a certain way and it's gotta be done right. And, and I mean, I don't wanna diminish that because I mean, if culture is the transmission of knowledge and that, you know, kind of our connection to everything that came before, it matters, but not when it gets in the way. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Like not when it gets in the way of trying to, to reclaim these things that were stolen from us. Um, you know, because if it, if they had allowed it to get in the way, then you guys wouldn't have had that practice from, well, that's not the right kind of drum. And then you wouldn't have had anything at all. And you wouldn't have, and really we lived in the bush. How pure could we have been right? in terms of how, in terms of how things were done? Like, yeah. come on, like, Skirts to the ankle? I don't think so. Not practical for women's people. <laughs> not, pra- not practical at all. Um, but now I'm going to throw to Sonia because you all you have a story also about about something that's coming back, uh, coming back to Fox. Fox loses his tail. Yeah. So, hi, I'm Sonia, and um, I live at the. I believe it's called the third meeting place of the Council of Three Fires in Windsor, Ontario. Um, and I'm a first reader at uh, Strange Horizons magazine. And otherwise I'm telling folk tales and talking about folklore on Twitter all the time, like twice a week usually. Um, and I think this is really opportune because the last time I did a reading like this was of a folktale during the day, which is actually taboo in the way that the traditional storytelling works in Palestinian folktales. It's the evening that is opportune for these types of stories. Mm -hmm. Um, Women typically told these types of stories. They were called sort of informally stories that are all lies from beginning to end. And this contrasted with the the men who told stories which were putatively true. So they were considered biographies rather than the lies that the women told. Um, And I don't know any of the actual, like these are the men told epics and they're pretty much like these long romances in the the sense of an adventure like the Arthurian legends. and I don't know any of those because they were very hard to, um, to I think, pass down through the disruption that the Palestinians faced with their displacement. And um, actually one of the interesting things about Palestinian folk tales is that there was a movement to try to preserve them in the late, in the early forties So just before the displacement of the Palestinian people, there was this sense that the folktales were being lost, the old ways were being supplanted by these Western modes of living. Um, So a lot of it's transmitted through the lens of Orientalists. And so I read a lot about their concern about the the primitive culture and I think one book even termed it um, like savage Semitic traditions being lost as we get modernized. Um, so that was a concern before folk tales for some kind of a, a clue to stories that are passed down in the Old Testament, the Torah and things like that. Um, I did prepare a story today and it's called, uh, it's, it doesn't actually have a name, but it's been passed down as the tale of the fo- how the fox got his tail back. And so, of course, before I tell the story, there was traditionally several things that were done. So there was um, 
the sort of nonsense poetry that was told. And it was, um, <clears throat> I don't have any prepared, but um, it was called a mattress because it was meant to get the audience to be rested and settled in. And so it was just sort of like bibbidi bobbidi boo type of, you know, didn't make any sense, but just getting people comfortable and like in the mindset that this is now a kind of sacred time. Um, and the being a, a special kind of time, it was open to uh, a supernatural intervention. And so you would also do a blessing before you would actually begin the story itself, because it was sort of like, if you don't, well, in most folk tales and folklore in Palestine, you have to bless before you begin anything because it can be influenced by the jinn in particular, that they're always sort of like on the periphery waiting to interfere in things. Um, so one of the issues that I typically face when I tell these these types of stories is how to do a blessing with a mixed crowd or a general crowd. So I think this time around, just if you can think for yourself just for a few minutes of something that's a blessing in your tradition or in your spiritual path or in your life, even if you want to just say you know, like, it's all good, anything would work for me <laughs> just a little bit. And you don't have to say it out loud, just in your heart. So for the fox to get his tail back, he has to lose it first, right? So he went to this woman who was, she was boiling some milk and it was really getting nice and sweet and steaming. And the fox came over and he thought, I'll just take a little sip of that because it looks really good. She won't know, you know, just take a little bit. And before she knew it, he dr drank the whole thing. And the woman came up and she grabbed his tail and she, he said, give me my tail back. And she said, you can get your tail back when you, when you return my milk. And he said, well, how am I going to do that? And she said, well, there are my goats. Go over there and milk them. So the, the, the fox went over to the goats. And the goats said, well, we can give you some milk. And they stroked their beards. And they were like thinking about it. And they said, but first we need some fodder. So go over to the olive trees and bring us some branches. And then we'll give you some milk in return. So the fox went over to the olive trees and the olive trees were swaying and just enjoying the sunshine. And they said, why do you need branches for? And he said, oh, I need to get some fodder for the, the goats so that the goats will give me their milk so I can get my tail back. And the trees said, well, we'll, we'll oblige you with some branches, but first we need a, a human to come and dig around our roots because we're really getting bunched up and crowded. So the fox goes, okay, well, I gotta find a human now. So he went out looking and he found a plowman and the plowman was just resting in the shade. So he walks over to him and he explains his situation. And the plowman says, I'd be happy to dig around the olive trees, but I don't have any suitable work shoes. My boots are all full of holes. So the fox says, well, what am I going, how am I going to help you? And he says, well, go over to the cobbler and ask for some shoes. So the fox goes over to the cobbler in the village and the cobbler says, well, why is a fox coming over to my, to my, my shop? And the fox says, oh, it's a long story, uncle. And he tells the whole thing from beginning to end. 
And the cobbler says, you know, I'll tell you what, um, I do have an old pair of work boots and you can have it for free. And just bring it over to the plowman. And so the fox brought the shoes to the plowman. Plowman got up and put them on, went over and dug around the olive trees. The olive trees were happy. They could get all the nutrients and spread out some more. So they danced and they let their branches down for the fox. And the fox took the branches back to the goats, <clears throat> excuse me, who then gave, them, gave the fox milk and the milk was restored to the old woman and the old woman gave him his tail back. So now my story is flown, as they say, like a bird from my hand to your hand. That's one of the traditional endings for a Palestinian folktale. And that I think highlights why the stories have to keep changing with each telling. Um, it's not, the way I've told it this time is not the same as the last time I've told it and it won't be the same as the next time. Um, and when I write it also, it's each time I write it, it's something a little bit different. There's a little essence that's different to it. Uh, but I think this particular story is one of my favorites because it really gets to the interrelatedness of all things. And you have here a lot of threads that run through Palestinian folk tales and folklore about the beingness of the trees and even there's stories about buildings having a consciousness and taking part in this kind of chain of events that um, could go either towards building a community or showing the collapse. If there's, a, um, in one story, the it's a louse that dies. And, and I mean, which is a creature that's typically looked down on and, and is, is like a pest or is considered dirty um, and reviled. I think that's the word I'm looking for. Um, and even that death causes the whole collapse of an entire community of, of beings, including the dump that is bordering the village. So everything mourns in that case. But this story is about it building up the community that there is this, this um, the wildness coming in in the form of the fox coming into the settled place. And there was also like a dichotomy in Palestinian folk tales about the wilds and like the nomadic peoples and the settled peoples. So there's stories about Bedouin that come in and there's also the Medani, the city people. So you have all this stuff that goes on in the stories and it's very... Um, I like that, that connectedness of it and you know, the little fox, he's not being bad. He's just being a fox, right? This is, this is what yeah, foxes like do, right? Yeah, like he's not being, you know, like a terrible, you, you know, he's, 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 just be, he's just being a fox. And then, you know, oops. <laughs> but then, yeah, like you said, everything has life. And I've been reading, I just finished um, Tyson Young Caporta's book about sand talk. And, and, you know, and he also talks about how, the connectedness of everything and you, you know and I've been writing my own book and thinking through how how we're connected to things and stones have life and you, you know so the goats they want what they want and and, and it's all very kind of yeah I mean the olive trees need something very particular done and you know we all need something and just I don't know well, and, and then you know Wob's books too go 
go into how how connected things are you know with moon of the crust and snow the infrastructure down south falls apart and that impacts things impacts things up in the north and yeah they yeah. used to big build um cairns of stone and they called them witnesses because they believed that at the uh, day of judgment that the stones would actually speak to witness for the worshipers when they go out in the fields to to do their worship they didn't actually have to get to the shrine or to the mosque mm -hmm. they could get within sight of it and they would build one of these stone cairns and that was a, what what was called a witness and so i always thought that was beautiful so the gin before we move on to kesha I know from watching X-Files and bad Disney movies, I know things about the gen, but I'm sure that what I know is really not true. So. Um, it's very different in Palestinian folklore than in general Islamic folklore. In Islamic folklore, um, I believe all believers have to believe in the existence of jinn, if I'm not mistaken, I'm, I could be mm -hmm. wrong, um, along with angels and so on. These are beings that are created by God and that the, um, the jinn were created from smokeless fire as an element, uh, whereas humans were created from the earth. Um, and so that sets us apart as two completely different beings. Um, but in Palestinian folklore, there's a spin on it and it's, it's completely different. In fact, the, the story goes that Eve had too many children she couldn't actually nurse all of her children. And so she was secretly exposing half of them. And Adam became aware of this and he asked God to protect them. And so God hid them away. And jinn comes from the word for the hidden ones. Hmm. So that's kind of the way, maybe it could be that the Palestinians took the entomology and sort of back engineered the story, you know, that, that in fact, this is what's going on. So you, they did have stories about half jinn, half human lineages, and even entire Bedouin tribes that were supposed to have been descended from jinn and humans. So it was, it was a very messy <laughs> line yeah. between the two in Palestinian folklore, whereas in the broader, they were more like, no, no, they're, they're they're different things. You can't really have have that kind of relations going on. But um, yeah, they were considered to be almost like the fae. You know, like they're they're oh, okay. bordering on like they're always present, um, waiting to trip people up for not do not showing proper respect in particular um, at thresholds at sort of wherever they're um, also in water that's not um, covered by the sun. So in wells and things like that. So they thought they kind of like hiding in there. Okay. In so caves. kind of like trickster figures? They have, because they're in Palestinian folklore, because they are human adjacent, um, they have the whole spectrum of morality that humans mm. do. So there are evil ones and there are good ones. They are actually, they have human religions and mm. they have spiritualities so that you could find a, um, a Muslim jinn who has gone on the Hajj, for example, but you'd also find 
just the trickster figure type of gin too. So they were just sort of treated with this kind of awe and um, usually you would have to respect their um, their place and they would respect yours type of thing. But I think that it kind of carried over with how they treated other factions of people because, or even other beings, because you also had to show respect. So if you dropped bread on the ground, for instance, you had to pick it up and ask respect, uh, ask um, a permission it was called. Hmm pick it back up again so it was like a general way of carrying yourself that you showed respect for other beings and for um you know they thought that the foxes had their own chief for example right. you know if the the animals had a kind of parallel political structure to the humans so the piece of bread was not an offering i still need it yeah <laughs> okay, yeah okay uh, yeah the world is so much more complicated than we think it is. There's so much more going on, and I and then I love that about our stories. Um, just the recognition that there, that there's that there's so much more going on, and then that brings us to Kesha. Good evening, everyone. I am so glad to be, have the opportunity to share with you this evening. So much has been shared already, and the consensus is about connection. And I like to say that the folk tales, um, the stories that we share connect our past to our present and our present to our future or future to our present. So we're constantly connecting or, or steering in a way. And as we tell the stories, it's like Sonia said, every time you tell a tale, even if it's the same story you've told it five times or there are five different tellers, you're getting a completely different story each time simply because they're picking up different energies. I, I like to think of, of, of the stories we tell as energies because there are times when stories have found me and <laughs> it was my responsibility to share that story. But I didn't understand what that was when I first started telling. But it's, it's interesting how you can get up and want to share a story one way, but there's a message that's needed to be presented. For example, the stories that that we tell are as old as time. They've been passed down generation to generation, but they're always relevant. And I think that's that's the little magic, uh, for lack of a better word. Every time you tell a folktale, somehow with either one person or there's that familiar energy that makes it current, it makes it relevant. And so when you add the new voices to it, it doesn't change the story so it becomes unrecognizable it it um uplifts it it, it gives it um oomph <laughs> um it gives it a, a different power because it, it's relevant in the time but adding that new voice adding that new perspective we're not changing anyone's mind just giving them a different way of looking at it or whatever the the situation is for me i didn't know i was a storyteller but looking back on my experiences i see now that i've always been i used to write poems over here and then i would witness or i would see the storytellers from the caribbean presenting and then you know you get busy with life and life takes you in whatever direction you just follow the direction and then there came to a point where i looked around and i thought where are our storytellers it's not enough to just be canadian it's not enough to be African, it's not enough to be Jamaican or Caribbean. 
there's more meaning behind it. And right now it's great because when we think of culture, we think of clothes and the music, but I knew there was something a little bit deeper that I wanted to share with everyone. But I was afraid, really introvert, not wanting to really share my feelings, afraid to be judged. But then I realized that when you're telling or when you're sharing your story, it's not about you. It's it, it's not about me at all. It's the, the story, it's that energy. It needs to just be brought out into the world and it'll be taken and changed, accepted or denied by who's receiving it. So I'm just giving it a platform, which is so necessary, especially now that we're Insta this and you know that instant gratification, it's so important to slow it down and remember who we are so that you can go forward with a better understanding of yourself or even a better understanding of those who came before you. And I found that so many cultures outside of mine had traditions that they were passing down. And when I looked around, I thought, well, okay, so we're passing down music, we passed down some cooking, but then the the, the gems of, of my culture are really the Proverbs. So when I looked at Proverbs, they were always those tricky little phrases that older people always said, and no one knew what they meant. However, somehow when that proverb gets thrown at you and you don't know what it means, some point in your future that proverb comes to you right in the moment where the meaning is revealed and now you're thinking ah i got it but if i'm having that aha moment but i'm not sharing it with the generation to come where does their aha moment come from and why don't you know so i i realized at that point that i needed to fill a gap i needed to stand in the space looking around the storytellers don't all look like me. They don't all sound like me. And even if we're sharing the same story, the way I tell it would be very different. Like I would throw in the proverbs that no one knows, but now they do because they're feeling that experience. And the more we share every story, we're now giving our children an opportunity to understand more about who they are because now they're seeing their history they're they're hearing their history as opposed to reading alone their history because it's great to have text but we understand that those who write the text write it how they want it to appear but this oral tradition of sharing it's it's pure there's no filter on it yes we can add to we can add to the present time or there are little tweaks where we change here and there but it's the purest form of history that we can give and it's really coming from literally coming from our ancestors because if you're just the platform to share that story that story has come through a few times so now it's coming through you to deliver a specific message which is I don't know, it, it gives me chills every time I think about, <laughs> think about it. Um, so before I didn't think of myself as, as a storyteller, I just told stories that happened to be from the Caribbean. But then when I fully understood the stories that I tell traveled from Africa, they traveled from a place that I've never been to. They, and the people that live there were taken. And they were brought to the Americas, they were brought to the Caribbean, they were brought to different places. But there are so many that didn't make it. 
So their stories were actually saved from in that journey so that they could be shared at the new destination so that I could now tell the story that originally came from, from Africa. And what I love now is that the stories that I tell, I often try to weave the tale, like I'll tell one story, um, it seems like I'll tell it twice, but I'll tell the uh, the African version and then I would tell the Caribbean version because then it gets all those cultural textures to it when it's told um, from the Caribbean end of it. So the story that I wanted to share tonight really kind of gives us an idea of where stories came from. And it really highlights the trickster character, which is Anansi. Anansi is a mythical creature and he, I'll call him he, was fashioned after the Ashanti spider god. So the Ashanti people lived in Africa in the area that we now know as Ghana. And the stories are crafted in a way where Anansi has the face of a man and the body of a spider. He's known as being a trickster character, but of course, with every trickster character, he's got his little quirks. He's known as being lazy and um, always trying to get a his own way in many things. But there's times when all of his foolish behavior or his trickery benefit everyone. And this is how stories came to the world. Long ago, long, long ago, the people worked hard. They would tend to their lands, they would cook their meals, they would gather in the evening, sit by the fire and sit and look and sit. They would go to sleep and repeat the next day. Now Anansi saw this and thought, the people need stories. There is one person who held all of the stories in the world, and that was the sky god Nyame. And Nancy decided at that point that he was going to go and see Nyame and get those stories. He fashioned a web and went up into the sky to seek an audience before Nyame. Nyame, I want your stories. The people need your stories. Nyame laughed. Anansi, who are you? Many have come before you and failed. What makes you think you can pay the price? Anansi thought, hmm, let's find out the price. Nyame said, you will have to bring me three things. First, you will bring me Onini, the snake who can swallow a goat whole. Next, you will bring me Osabo. Osabo is the leopard whose teeth are as sharp as spears. And finally, bring me Morabo, the hornet whose sting is like fire. Oh, and Nancy thought to himself, this is a big price, but he will pay it. The people need their stories. Now, all of these animals, except for Morabo, were bigger than Anansi, so he would have to be very, very smart. So Anansi accepted the challenge and came back down to earth. When he came back down, he looked at the people and smiled because he knew that he would bring them the stories. He thought and thought and thought the night through until he came up with a plan. First, he needed to get Onini. Anansi went out into the forest and grabbed a long bamboo stick. He threw it over his shoulder and started walking through the forest, talking to himself. I don't think so. Maybe. Huh. 
Hmm. Well, Onini was passing through and saw Anansi quarreling with himself. Anansi, why do you quarrel with yourself? Ah, my friend, I'm not quarreling with myself. I'm quarreling with my wife. She says that you are smaller than this stick and weaker. I think that you are stronger and longer, but I don't know how to prove I'm right. Hmm. That is easy, Anansi. Lay down your stick and I will lay next to it. So Anansi did. Hmm, I'm still not sure. When I think you're longer, you move your head. And when I look again, you move your tail. I might have to tie you to the pole. Onini agreed. So Anansi spun a web. He tied some around Onini's head, his tail, and a whole bunch of places in the middle. When he was done and Onini was snug to the pole, Anansi laughed. <laughs> You're caught. Anansi picked up the bamboo stick and took it up to Nyame. Nyame smiled out of one side of his mouth. Off Anansi went because he had more work to do. When he came back down, he had to fashion a plan in order to get Osabo. Osabo, the great hunter. He took the same path every night to catch his prey. But there needed to be a plan in place. And Nancy had one. He dug a big, wide, deep hole along the path that Osabo takes every night. When he was done, he covered it over with leaves and sticks and a little bit of dirt. When Anansi was satisfied, he went home for the night. And out came Osebo, sleek and cunning, stalking his prey. He took one step too far and bloop, he fell into the hole that Anansi had dug. He couldn't get out. He tried and tried and could not get out and was stuck in that hole till morning. That's when Anansi passed by. Oh, Sabo, how did you get down there? Get me out, Anansi, get me out. Oh, Anansi looked at the predicament. What would he do? And how would he get Osebo out? He saw a skinny tree and he thought to himself, this would work. Will you kill me and my family? No, Anansi, get me out, Osebo said. So Anansi bent the tree over into the hole, fashioned a web and let it down. When he did so, he said, tie this around your tail. Osebo followed. And then when Anansi was satisfied, he let go of the tree, which flew up to its proper height. And Osebo came out of the hole, bouncing around, spinning in circles. He was so dizzy. And while he was spinning, Anansi, twirled the web and wrapped him up tight. When he was done, Anansi laughed. <laughs> You're caught and took him up to Nyame. Nyame smiled out of both sides of his mouth, but there was more work to do. So Anansi came back down to earth. This time he had another plan, an easy plan. Murabo, his sting was like fire and he was angry, but Anansi had a very good plan. On his way home, he found a calabash. And when he plucked it, he opened it up and scooped out all of the goodness, all of the flesh, and he rinsed it out and put in water. When he got to Marabo's nest, Anansi took a deep breath. 
And he took another one. And then he poured water on himself. And when he was good and wet, he threw water on Morabo's nest. And the hornet and his family were hangry. And they came out fighting. <laughs> Anansi stood close by with a large leaf over his head. And he said, oh, the rainy season has come early. Oh, Marabo, your home is all wet. What will you do? Hmm. I know. Why don't you get into my gourd, my calabash here, and you can stay there until your home is dry. Well, they had no choice. Everywhere was wet, or so they thought. And in every one of them flew. Zing, 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 zing. When the last hornet flew in, Anansi took the leaf and plucked the hole. He took the calabash up to Nyame and presented it. Nyame laughed. He said, Anansi, I told you to bring me Mirabo and you bring me a calabash. What am I to do with this? Shake. Nyame shook and he could hear the hornets vexed inside. Zing, zing, zing. Nyame laughed a whole hearty ha 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 bigger men than you have failed, but you have come and you have earned these stories. He took the stories out from under his throne, presented the box to Anansi and said, Anansi, these stories are your stories. You have paid the price. And anyone who tells these stories must know that they belong to you. Yes, 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 yes. And Nancy took the box, came back down to earth, and he looked at all the people who were sitting around the fire with nothing to do. And he started to give out stories. He gave out stories to everyone that was present and those who weren't, their families received stories. And the people told stories to each other, to their children, to their children's children. And this went on and on and on. Until this day, you can still hear of spider stories in Africa. Well, they all know about spider stories. And well, now I'm telling you a spider story. So I encourage you to go out and share this one too. Thank you. Oh, I love it. Thank you. That was, I love Anansi. <laughs> but that made me think of Nanabush. And so now I'm going to throw back to Walt because, um, because you know, thinking you know, the gin, you know, have you know some some trickster in them, you know, some of them, and, and a Nancy, you know, the trickster, the trickster figure. We have our own trickster figure. We've got, we've we've got Nan, we've got Nana Bush, Nana Bojo, Wena Bojo. Like he has as many names as he has stories. I think. <laughs> how does how do those traditional stories? How does trickster show up in your work? Oh, well, I think for me, um, hearing those trickster Nanabush stories when I was a kid uh, really firmly placed me in, you can hear, I think you probably hear this crow, uh, there's a Nanabush story about the crow, the Ondeg, right? Uh, yeah. You know, once upon a time, as the story goes, uh, the crow was formerly a very colorful bird with a very beautiful song, uh, but it was very cocky at the same time and it thought it was better than every other bird around it. So uh, to tell a very condensed version of this, um, Nanabush took it upon himself to humble the crow. 
um, because the crow was bullying some of the other birds around it. And what it did was, what Nanabush did was drag, pull the crow down, uh, drag it through the mud, and then snip its tongue so that it couldn't sing its beautiful song anymore. So the crow makes this caw noise, ka 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 ka, which in Ojibwe or Anishinaabemowin means no. It's saying no, Nanabush, no, don't uh, take my colors away, don't change my song. So um, that's why we hear the crow say ka. It's saying, it's saying, yeah, Gawin. It's saying ka to, to Nanabush. So anyway, yeah, just like uh, you know, having a crow nearby and you know, saying it's ver vocalizing whatever its sound is um, reminds us of that Nanabush story. And the moral in that story is to be humble, right? To not place yourself above anybody else or anything else in creation, because we're all meant to be, <clears throat> you know, uh, peers. We're all meant to be kin on this earth, um, you know, on this land. And we're meant to work together and live together. And uh, so th that's what Nana Bush stories always taught me, you know, and, and I think like, in many ways, those uh, really short, often entertaining and funny Nana Bush stories are geared more towards kids to pass those morals or those lessons down, right? And there's like a similar story about the birch tree, you know, what, that we call Wigwasitig. Um, so the birch tree, as we know, has, you know, these, these um, horizontal markings on it, these brown and black markings. And the similar story is that the birch thought it was the most beautiful tree and Nanabush humbled it as well by, you know, marking up its, its bark and so on. So like you can walk through the bush and, you know, see that birch tree, you can hear the crow, uh, you can be reminded of these Nanabush stories. You can walk on the rocks near the lake and see lichen and moss on the rock. There's a Nanabush story around that. Tell too. that one. Yeah, okay, sure. Um, I was thinking about that one. <laughs> I, wrote, um, I wrote a version of this in, in, in Moon of the Crested Snow. It's part of, um, you know, the storytelling uh, moment uh, uh, in the book later on. But um, yeah, so essentially, and, and as, as everybody has said, it's interesting because I've heard different versions of this uh, throughout my life, uh, depending on where I go, depending on who the elder is, who's sharing it. And like, you can hear like these regional um, and community sort of influences depending on where you hear the story, right? So the Nishnabek that I'm descended from are on, you know, the North Shore of Lake Huron and Georgian Bay, as, as I mentioned earlier. But you could go a little farther south, you know, and hear a similar version uh, with slightly altered details, uh, but with the same core uh, moral or the same core lesson, right? Uh, which is super interesting because that's what, you know, binds us together are, are these morals that are passed on in our stories. So anyway, uh, the story of, of Nanabush and why we have lichen or moss on rocks uh, goes back to Nanabush preparing for um, the winter, you know, uh, Fall is coming. Uh, Nanabush has had a really good summer. Um, you know, he's put off preparing for the winter because he's had a good time, you know, swimming, eating berries, just relaxing, enjoying the sunshine and so on. Uh, but as it starts to get colder, he thinks, oh, geez, you know, maybe it's time to start getting ready. I guess, you know, I should go out and gather some food, make my preparation for my winter lodge and so on. Um, so he's walking along the beach and he doesn't see anybody else around and he thinks, oh no, uh, maybe all the geese have left already. You know, maybe I'm going to miss out on that potential food source. Uh, so he's walking along and then he hears this, a, a bit of commotion uh, up in the bush and he says, oh, I wonder what's going on up there. You know, I thought everybody was gone, but let's go see what's happening. So he walks into the bush and he sees this big gathering of geese. 
and they're all celebrating they're having a party uh and you know they're singing they're dancing and so on so Nana Bush goes up to one of them and says, hey, Goose, uh, what's going on here? You know, what are y'all doing? And the Goose says, well, Nana Bush, uh, you know, we're getting we're getting ready to go down south. We're just having our last uh, celebration here uh, up in these homelands. You know, we're giving thanks for the good summer that we had uh, and we're making uh, our preparations for our long flight down to the south. And you said, oh, OK, you know, uh, well, may I join you in your celebration? And the goose says, yeah, of course, you know, come and come and join us, come and dance, come and sing, offer us one of your songs and one of your dances. So Nanabush takes a look around and he notices that, you know, the geese are nice and plump, you know, they're getting ready for this long haul. Uh, and he thinks, whoa, you know, there's a few dozen here. Uh, perhaps this is my bounty for the winter. Perhaps I can uh, hunt all these geese on the spot and I'll be set for the winter. So he goes back to the goose he was talking to and he says, hey, goose, uh, I got a song for y'all. Uh, I can, you know, show you this dance that we do where I'm from. And uh, will you join me? You know, can I offer this to you? And can we celebrate together? And the goose says, yeah. So Nana Bush says, okay, so what you got to do is you got to close your eyes and you just got to twirl around in a circle. You know, that's the dance. And, uh, you know, it, it puts us in the circular motion, like the cycle of life, and it's a very sacred thing. Uh, but he's, he's bullshitting this goose at the same time. He's just making this up, right? So the goose says, okay, uh, miigwech, thank you, Nana Bush. Uh, we will do this dance. Uh, please lead the way. So Nana Bush closes his eyes and starts spinning in a circle, and then all the geese start doing it. Uh, so then Nanabush sees his chance and he goes up and he rings the neck of one of the, ge the geese, uh, goes to the next one, goes to the next one, goes to the next one and essentially slaughters all the geese that are there celebrating in the bush. So at the end of his little song, uh, there are a few dozen geese uh, dead on the ground there. So Nanabush says, okay, I got my, my bounty for the winter. I'm good to go. So he hauls them all back down to his uh, spot on the beach where he was thinking about setting up a lodge and he stacked them all up. So he starts a fire and he uh, starts uh, preparing to make his own uh, meal for the evening and he coop, cooks one of the geese and he eats it all and he gets full and by this time he's you know a little slower a little you know larger and so on and he's a little uh, fatigued from you know the excitement of the day. So he says to uh, his butt his his rear end he says okay I Okay, but uh, I'm going to have a little nap. So I want you to keep an eye out. Make sure nobody steals all our food. This is all our food for the winter. Uh, I'm going to go have a sleep. So when Anna Bush passes out uh, and he wakes up a little while later and the sun's starting to go down and the fire's starting to go out. And uh, he, he notices that uh, there's just the legs of the geese that he was cooking to eat later. Uh, and then the rest of the geese are gone. Uh, and he says, but, you know, rear end, you're supposed to pay attention. You're supposed to keep an eye out. Now all of our uh, food is gone for the winter. Now I'm going to punish you. So Nanabush sticks his butt into the fire to set it on fire. Uh, and he, in this moment of sort of confusion and greed, he forgets that his butt is connected to his body and that he's actually harming himself. So his butt catches on fire and he notices that he's actually in pain. So he's like, oh, geez. So he runs over to the rock and starts sliding down on his butt, you know, scraping his butt off the rock to try to put the fire out. Um, so what remained was, you know, these colorful sort of plant markings on the, uh, on the rocks. So uh, that's the lichen that we have today, you know, those little green sort of leafy things and in the, in the form of moss as well. 
Um, and when we see, you know, the moss and the lichen when we're going swimming in the summertime, um, that reminds us that, oh, Nanabush uh, wasn't ready. Uh, he got greedy and he ended up screwing himself over. So, you know, when you see that lichen, uh, just make sure that you're prepared yourself for the winter and that you don't get too greedy, you know, that you're part of a community and that you're part of wider creation. So, uh, so that's one of the versions of that story. Um, it's usually called the Anabush and the Geese, uh, but yeah, there are variations of it from, from community to community. I love the number of butt stories that there are in <laughs> Nishinaabe culture. And like, we have so many butt stories, you guys have no idea. <laughs> How do tricksters show up in Palestinian stories, Sonia? Oh, I was just thinking about that. Uh, it's unfortunate that I don't know any of the men's stories because I've heard that one of the archetypes of the hero is typically a cunning figure. Mm. And even in the folk tales, the, the man is, um, there's a cycle of stories about clever Hassan, whose name means just clever handsome. And so sometimes he's a prince, sometimes he's a fisherman's son. It doesn't matter, it's sort of like a stock character. And he gets into and out of trouble by using his wits. But there isn't really um, like a, I would say like in the mythology, mm -hmm. a trickster figure that I can pinpoint. I think mostly that's in what, what are called the Siras, the the biographies where the men would tell stories, but the um, getting back to like the, some of the tales being a little bit rude. The, um, when I was reading about the context, the social context of the folk tales, they said that what happened is often the tellers would be the older women and that the older women, because of their age, they had a certain freedom in what they were able to talk about which the younger women were not mm -hmm. and so there was a lot of um, the culture was very conservative in most cases and um, people wouldn't talk about anything to do with the body and so on it, it was all very much like trying to be very um, stoic I guess you might say um, and so the women the older women were coming out with stories like one of them is about a woman who wishes for a daughter and she says you know I praise to God for a daughter and says just give me any daughter even if she's a little shit and that's what the story is about that she has a little poop daughter <laughs> so it's like there's a lot of stories <laughs> like that that are like be careful what you wish for but it's also like you know the bodily fluids and fecal matter and stuff that you know it's not normally <laughs> You don't get to talk about that kind of thing. Um, there's, um, you know, stories that deal with very explicitly with sex and so on that are like the um, collection that's being reprinted soon, um, which is called uh, Speak Bird, Speak Again, um, has a lot of material that actually the book was banned by Hamas in Gaza because it had so much like sexual material in it. So they're very conservative, that, that party. So they did not approve of these traditional stories that mm -hmm. were collected in, in um, mostly like in um, refugee camps. So they're sort of trying to st stamp out something that is, like you can't, you can't put a lid on that. 
Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think too, though, you, you know, like the, the conservative, the conservative elements in, in our cultures, those come out as a result of colonization, right? Because yeah. so much of it, you know, you know, and I've got a friend, you know, we talk about, you know, you know, she talks about terminal creed, whereas, you know, you know, things have always evolved and adapted. And yet, you know, that there are those like hyper traditional people that say, no, this is the way it is. This is the length that the spirit is. This is the way that we do the prayers. This is the way, and it, it kind of fixes it in amber. And, and it's, mm-hmm. I think the same process at work in terms of, of how are the other people seeing us? And we have, you know, there, there's a level of, of self-protection yeah. happening. Um, the, some of the Orientalists yeah. had said too, that they were, when they talked about the folklore that they were getting, they did complain that the informants, they called them, so the, the native informants, mm-hmm. they call them, um, would be very concerned about what the Orientalist scholar wanted to hear and how it would be received. And so they would talk about only certain things and keep other things kind of in this holy silence, you know, not talking about them. And so there were entire books written by people who had lived among the natives and had access to some of the stories and some of the details that were not otherwise talked about because they had just sort of gotten everybody's guard down enough that these were these were being told like there was a whole tribe of people for example that had gone under the radar because they had this very strange insular culture that the other people's just sort of gave them their space and their they just kept mum about them and so the scholar was like, I know about them though, because I lived with them for so many years and they trust me and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and I think, so everybody's really interested in, in native things again. Um, you, you know, settlers are feeling guilty and wanting to, you know, all up in their feelings and, and wanting to learn about us and stuff. And, you know, somebody was recommending to a friend of mine, a native person on the African that had been punking them. Um, that they should read Black Elk Speaks and Lame Deer Visions. And they're both books written by white anthropologists. And when Native people talk to white anthropologists, you know, like you just said, Svenja, we're kind of shaping our story a little bit. We're holding back some stuff because not everything is for everybody. But there's also a certain amount of, there's a, a certain amount of awareness about how it's being heard and how it's going to then be taken out into the world. And like, do we really want, you know, you, you know, our, our official story being Nanabush dragging his butt down the rock. <laughs> so we're going to tell other yeah, stories. Exactly. You know, we're going to shape them a little bit differently. But Kesha, you know, Sonia made, a, you know, an interest, you know, the comment about the older women. And I know turning 40 was like the best thing in my life. I mean, that would happen a long time ago. But there was a certain amount of liberation that happened in that moment when I realized I'm in my forties now and I don't care. <laughs> you know, and then it got, even got worse when I turned 50. There is some freedom. How, how do you, how do you find that? Not saying that you're 40 or 50, but just in your storytelling, as you encounter other stories, is, is there a difference in the way older women tell stories? Yes, there absolutely is. Um, the freedom of language, I would say, not necessarily foul language, but just um, 
because we can I, I can speak in plain English or speak in Patois or Creole, depending on which which version of what story I'm telling. And I find that um, just older folks in general, they tell you the story and they tell you the story behind the story and the rest of it. So you could be there for a while because they want you to have the whole spectrum of it. And so you're getting the story the way it would have been told. You're getting the story the way that you would have heard it amongst family and friends. And then you're getting the, the, the true story that you would only tell behind closed doors. So you're getting all those versions kind of mixed into one. And I find that, yeah, crossing that threshold just made it seem like, you know what, I'm here, take it or leave it. <laughs> And so as you tell the story, I'm telling the story as I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to give you the textbook version because I'm in a mixed audience. I'm going to give you the actual version of the story the way I would tell it amongst um, friends and family. But I'll explain a few things that I wouldn't that are not obvious or, or common knowledge. So that's the way I, I've taken. That's the approach that I've taken when I tell stories. But when I sit in groups like this where there are older tellers, I'm just like, because you're getting all the tea. <laughs> and that makes me think Wab of aunties and just kind of what a much different space that is, you know, when you're, you know, because we've got the drum, you know, I, I belong to a hand drum group. And when older aunties are part of our group, it's a much different vibe and there's big stories happening. And why tell people about, Ojibwe aunties. What are we like? What are we like? I guess I'm old now. That makes me. <laughs> well, there is, um, yeah, much like Kesha said, you know, from my perspective, you know, as, as uh, I guess, a nephew, um, there is, you know, some, uh, there are fewer limits on language I've found and fewer limits on, or self-imposed limits, I guess, I guess I should say on, on structure, on space, on on everything, and in 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 that sense too, you get everything a lot more bluntly and a lot more to the points. But you know, there is the story behind the story and everything else. So I love how you put that because that's so true. You know, um, for me, uh, I I consider it a very humbling experience. You know, I feel very honored to be amongst aunties to be hearing things because, you know, what has happened to our cultures, uh, I guess more broadly as Indigenous people, is this patriarchy that's been imposed upon our cultures, right? And the power that's been, I guess, more lopsided towards the male side in our communities when traditionally it was never that way, you know? Um, in the Anishinaabek that I'm descended from, uh, as I understand it, the women were always the ones who gathered, uh, created consensus on key decision making and then sent the men out to either negotiate with the settlers or trade with them or whatever else right um but with the creation of like the indian act system um and the chief and councils that have uh, sort of derived from that you know it's been predominantly men who have been in those positions right and unfortunately you know women have been silenced and pushed to the periphery for far too long Thankfully, nowadays, I think women are, are returning to that rightful place. And I feel very fortunate that, you know, I had more elder women in my life than, than elder men to influence and inform me as a kid. So I think in that sense, that's why I'm always like deferring to the aunties basically anytime in anywhere I end up, right? Because 
you know, there's that respect and that revelry that is obviously required there. Um, but also the knowledge that, you know, I, I have a certain place and I have to learn still, you know, I'm 42 now. I've, I've made it to the halfway point, I think, of, of this journey, but I still have a really long way to go and I still have a lot to learn. And I think there's way more to learn still um, from our aunties. So, yeah. The aunties will be the one to keep you in line. The aunties will be the ones to uh, tell you it straight up. Uh, but the aunties have just so much uh, knowledge and and wisdom um, and experience and perspective of especially recent history too, you know, like I mentioned, surviving the Indian Act and surviving colonization and everything. Um, so yeah. Um, yeah, is there anything you wanna add about the aunties there, Patty? I think you might have some some additional good insights. Well, I was just thinking, because as we age, so we've got, we've got our gender roles, right? Like the, you know, for, for the Anishinaabeg people, the men are responsible for the fire and the women are responsible for, for the water. But, you, you know, for, for two-spirited people, you know, they move back and forth. Like these gender binaries, you know, we, it wasn't really like a binary binary. It was, you know, because there were two-spirited people who moved back and forth between those roles. But as you age you know, like as a woman ages, you know, we less estrogen, more testosterone, you know, mustaches, you know? well, and men too, right? As men age and, 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 you know, kind of they pass that, you know, they get that softness in their chests that you usually associate with women, you know, so there, those gender roles start to blur a little bit too, in terms of what we're able to be responsible for. And that's a tremendous gift in any community because people also die. So to be able to have people who can move back and forth. And I think that's where we, you know, when we talk about kind of the prototypical auntie, that's who we're talking about. We're talking about these older women who are now taking on, you know, in addition to the stories that they've gathered, you, you know, are taking on the, these other broader roles as well and, and shedding some of those rules that do apply to younger you know, to younger men, to younger women. So I'm sorry, I'm thinking with like kind of my anthropology hat, um, which is totally self-taught and completely unreliable. Um, I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but that's just what I was thinking because as we gather in all of these stories and we hold all of these things as we get older, the rules, and that's what tricksters do too, right? Tricksters are always pushing back against those rules because the rules are important. Society doesn't work well without rules, but we also have to be able to push back against them so that they don't become constricting and start and starve our communities. So as, as we're kind of wrapping up and this time always goes by so fast, um, I'm gonna start with Sonia. And as you think about story and kind of the role that stories play in your life, what do you hope from them? What do you, what do you hope, and, and so I'm going to kind of have pose that question to each of you as you as you work with stories, you kind of like pull them in from your community and, and other sources. And then, you know, Sonia, I love that image, you know, you've released it in, in, into the world as, as this is kind of your work. What do you hope for, you know, from the stories that you draw in and then release? Well, there's a lot of damage that's been done by colonialism to the Palestinian people. And one of the, the casualties has been the continuity with the folk traditions. And 
Um, somebody has written about this. I think it was Sonia Nimir. Um, she has a little collection of stories of, um, called Gadar the Ghoul, I think, and other stories. Um, she had talked in an interview about how the story of the displacement and the, the sort of individual family stories of the lost homeland and the individual trees and, and the land features of the home that are lost have taken the place of the folktale mm -hmm. in many contexts. And that's what I see when I'm like the, the folktales aside, there's a certain truth to them, right? But these stories that have sort of supplanted them are literally true in a, in a very different sense. And whenever you meet Palestinians, what they'll do is they'll start identifying by where they're originally from, where their ancestral homes are and making connections that way. I've met people that are my cousins because they were from the same village as my father. Um, and then from there, usually you'll tell a story of what we call the, the catastrophe, the Nakba. So that was the, the depopulation of Palestine. And so everybody has, <clears throat> excuse me, has a Nakba story about their parents, about their grandparents, usually grandparents at this time, but some people still have some parents that are, are old enough to remember. And um, they'll be full of trauma, full of grief, but also this, this like reverence for the homeland. And, you know, like the way my dad describes the village is like, it was always ever giving and abundant, you know, in this sort of automatic way that didn't have to rely on human cultivation or anything. It's sort of like grapes growing here and quinces and you could just go and pick them and they were just, you know, produce and being almost like a paradise in itself, you know, and then the loss of that paradise. So you would tell these stories over and over again to the younger generation so that they don't forget. One of the things that was assumed was that the older generations would die and the young would forget Palestine. And then that would be the end of the Palestinian people and it'd be an open and shut case. And that hasn't been the case at all. So I think for me, um, retrieving these stories has been a bit like having to negotiate through like all the orientalist lensing and um, all the, the, a lot of the sources I, I have to refer to are texts that have fixed in amber the stories and tried to codify them and uh, classify them and um, infuse a lot of racism sometimes. Um, one collection begins with just saying that these stories are like a dead dog with beautiful teeth. <laughs> and so, <laughs> the reader should look at the beautiful teeth and not the dead dog and I'm thinking wow <laughs> so yeah I had to read through all these these really fraught um, <clears throat> sources to bring out the the fragments that have survived and try to breathe life into them again and then let them go and start doing their fizzy messy thing <laughs> again Mm. It made me think that we have, like you had said, it, you all have Nakba stories, like the same, like we all have residential school stories. 
Every native person you know has a residential school story. A lot of us have child welfare stories. You, you know, we, we you know we've all we've all got those stories. And, and then I wonder that makes me wonder kind of what are stories that are going to look like a hundred years from now, as our traditional stories have have incorporated you know, these histories as well and kind of how they're going to. There actually is a collection called Palestine Plus 100. Oh yeah. Which was uh, published by Comma Press. And it's the whole whole thing is what is Palestine going to be like a hundred years after the Nakba? Hmm. And they had Palestinian writers to uh, write science fiction stories, short stories. Neat. Yeah, I don't have a panel for science fiction and I really need to put one together because I love, well, ever since Daniel framed it as, as learning how to be good ancestors, because that's what we are, right? Like if we're thinking about worlds, what kind of world do we want a hundred years from now? We got to think about who we are now and where are we? Are we there? Like, you know, when you look in science fiction, speculative fiction, we're not there. Like uh, Janessa mentioned, uh, Rebecca Rowanhorse, and, and there's a lot more Indigenous writers writing that stuff now, but it, it's important that we see ourselves in the future, that we, that we still exist. That's, that's, that's really important. So Kesha, what do you hope for as you kind of draw these stories out and send them into the world? It was, the journey to finding my voice was it was already it was already laid out, but you didn't see the patterns. Like now, I'm looking back and I see everything all presented out. And I think that our children need to know who they are and where they truly came from, where their people came from. Um, it's like there's so much time has been spent on the the drama, the um, the my, the slavery, the 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 abuses. But it's there's such richness that started before then, that our stories capture those. Our stories, even though the stories talk about our experiences, they still share our, our, our beliefs, our, our traditions are woven into the stories that we're telling. So yes, they're getting a great trickster's tale or they're getting a great uh, quote unquote fantasy story, but they're getting the morals that we're trying to teach them anyways. And they'll be better receptive experiencing it through the story than for us, you know, parents uh, wagging our fingers or, you know, um, when I was growing up, I was like, you have to go to church and you're in church for three hours. And it's like, I didn't hear anything. I just knew I was hungry. But, you know, if I was, you know, listening to a storyteller, that would have been a whole different experience. I would have forgotten I was hungry and been all about the story. So finding those stories, and, and it's like uh, Sonia said, you've got to dig through a lot. And sometimes you find two sentences and you've got to either build the story or just share the two sentences that you have. But it takes understanding the time, understanding the experience to be able to build those out. And it's important for, for the teller to take that journey and for um, who we're sharing the story with to experience it as well. Um, I found that when I sharing stories, my love is just sharing stories, <laughs> even if it's with my, myself or one person, it's sharing the stories is so important because now you're hearing it again. You're bringing, you're bringing it back to life. You're bringing those lessons back. You're, you're, you're giving them 
um, I want to say priority, but that's not the word that I'm looking for. You're you're making it important again. Um, I remember when everyone was like, oh, Black Lives Matter. I was like, whoa, where have you been? It's it's always mattered, but they've forgotten because they got caught up in the in the in the hoopla and the news, but forgot about the the great stories that show that we were inventors and you know all of these things. Your your iron, your 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 dishwasher, your 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 dryer. That's that was all the mind of someone that they're now saying. Oh, by the way, your life now matters. It was mattering then too because you're using the appliances, kind of thing. So it's important that we 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 give the whole picture, and especially now, our kids are moving fast. We're moving fast, but it's so important to to make that uh, what do you call it, MQT time <laughs> or meaningful quality time. Mm. Make that be when we're sharing our stories. Our elders are are are. are passing away. So those who were, uh, who had the the weight of, or the responsibility of sharing those stories are not gonna be there. So if we stop talking, then the story dies and we, we can't afford to do that. We need to continue to share and, and leave, a, leave a, an, a footprint or leave a, um, a blueprint for our kids to be able to follow or take up that mantle because someone will be interested. It might not be my children. It might, it might be someone else's, but at least I've left some type of footprint that they're able to say, we have history. And this is a story that was told generations ago. You know, I'm hearing it again. I'm not reading it in a book because when you read it, you're making your own context. Like you're, you're, you're making your own, you're putting your own prejudice, your own judgments. But when you're hearing that story, you're hearing your history, you're, all of those experiences, all of those traditions are, are now sitting here. It's like music. As soon as the beat hits, you feel it in your heart. And that's what, you, what happens when you hear the story. So I, I'm just gonna keep telling <laughs> and keep sharing. And the, the having to dig up the stories, and there's a lot that you go through and being able to tell the stories that have never been told before or have been forgotten, I love the experience of those saying, hey, I remember that story. And then they retell it to their grandkids. And that experience has to keep going because that's how our stories keep moving forward. And that's how we keep giving life to who we are because the, the truths, our truths, our histories, our oral traditions keep flowing forward. Sorry, Listening, that was long. That's okay. <laughs> Listening to you and Sonia talk about the work involved in recapturing and then kind of ship getting the stories so that they can be shared it, that sounded like your are you're an auntie story you know, the work that he went through to get those stories and then how how disrespectful it would be to let them fade because he went through a lot of trouble <laughs> and those animals too right they got i don't know like did they get stuck up there <laughs> i don't know i, I don't know what happened, happened to the stories too like did they get stuck up there <laughs> Oh, was it a good place for them to be? I don't know. But it just feels, we don't know. It's just such a neat. But anyway, that was just that was just where my brain went. So, Wab, we'll give you the last word. 
Yeah, I I, uh, I hope to just continue uh, trying to um, relay these stories and try to uh, trying to elevate the people who are sharing them. At the same time, I think at this point in my life, uh, I do have a platform, and there's a responsibility that comes with that. Uh, and we're at a point now where I think there are a lot of Indigenous stories that are thriving. You know, a lot of our uh, older stories uh, are current realities as well you know indigenous people are more empowered than they've ever been in this sort of modern context to share their stories and you know speak their truths and so on um so i'm inspired by that all the time uh i, I recently uh quit my journalism job uh last year so i'm sort of transitioning out of working you know 20 years in mainstream media into what i hope will be i guess more of a holistic approach to um story receiving and story sharing right and that was my whole plan before the pandemic set in was to spend a lot of time in communities with elders right but you know i'm, I'm patiently waiting the opportunity uh, to do that again um all that to say though uh what i do struggle with and what i'm you know slightly discouraged by um are the dwindling indigenous languages as a result of colonization and you know colonialism and we do we are seeing a mad dash to record as many elders as possible sharing these stories in our original languages but um not a lot of the younger generations have the capacity or the resources to learn those stories properly in those languages and then share them more widely at the same time and that's not that's not any of our fault you know that's not our fault the that we don't have those languages, you know, those were taken away from us. Uh, but I do believe, you know, if, if any sort of government or leadership is serious about reconciliation, quote unquote, um, it would fully fund opportunities for all Indigenous people to learn their languages fluently so that these stories can live again, uh, can live once again in the way that they're originally intended to be shared in, in these Indigenous languages. So, so my hope is that, you know, as my kids grow up, they'll have more opportunities to hear these stories in their original language. Um, I, I do believe the desire is there. Uh, there is um, a passion for these languages and the stories to uh, help them reemerge in that way. Um, it'll just take a lot of work and, you know, some support from the bodies that took the languages from us in the first place. But that is my hope to see these languages once again, uh, see these stories once again, uh, be shared in, in our original languages. Mm -hmm. Well, because and I'm, this is the chapter I'm working on right now, is our language, it's a different way of thinking. Every language is, right? Language, languages contain worldview. And, you know, for the Anishinaabeg language, it, it's verb-based. Mm -hmm. So it's all about action and, and engagement. It's not about things acting on other things. It, mm -hmm. It's about, you know, and, and I'm reading Lawrence Gross, and so he's all up in the quantum physics of it. And... <laughs> And how, you know, kind of we exist within, you know, within the processes of, um, I don't know, man, AWP would probably claim is better than I would. Uh, they're a quantum physicist person. Um, you know, but just kind of how we exist within. And so we're not thinking. And, and so it's a much different way of thinking about relationship and thinking about the way we engage, you, you know, kind of with each other and, and with the world around us. And that's like a whole other podcast conversation. About, yeah. you know, about the importance of language and our stories in, in, in the language. And what would it take? What would it take for our people to be able to speak their languages and to hear their stories, you, you know, in, 
you know, in, in any in any of the languages, because even though I don't understand the language very well, um, I love hearing it. Mm-hmm. I love the rhythms of it. I love you like I, I'm scattering it in, in in my book because even the little bits that I know ground me in this place. This is the language of this place. These are the ideas. And even if I don't fully understand the concepts, it helps me to start shifting my brain towards mm-hmm. different concepts, towards thinking about, you know, even just understanding that I need to start thinking about these things differently. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's where story is so powerful. But like what Gisha, like you, you brought up the language. That's where, where that is so critical. Um, just about understanding because that's who we are, right? Culture is in this place in between um, the yarning. I said, I just finished uh, Tyson Yankaporta's book and he talks about yarning and yarning along song lines. And I'm like, oh, I need to talk to you. <laughs> so anyway, I have just enjoyed yarning with you guys and the things that we have created and heard and uh, what really made me think a lot. I appreciate you guys so much. So miigwech. Thank you. Miigwech. Thank you for listening. Ombe streams live throughout 2021 on wwwtwitchtv on the third Wednesday of every month. Episodes are archived there as highlights and released as podcasts under the name Ombe wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Medicine for the Resistance is also archived and streamed on Twitch on Tuesday nights, and that's a podcast I co-host with Carrie Goring where we explore themes similar to the conversation you just heard. The Colonial Project wants to control how and if we see each other. Our work is in investigating the stories we were not told so that we do see each other. You can support this work at Patreon slash pay your rent or by buying us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash medicine for the resistance. You can find out more about me and the things I do at danish.ca, that's D-A-A-N-I-S.ca, or on my substack, pattywithaway.krawec.substack.com, where I post essays about the books I'm reading. And there's also a section available for Ambe, where you can listen to past episodes and read transcripts as they become available. I would appreciate it if you subscribe to my substack. You'll get additional essays and help support my writing and podcasting. You can find me on Twitter at G-I-N-D-A-A-N-I-S and on Instagram at Patty with a Y-W-B-K. Thanks for listening. We'll talk soon.